Greetings, bibliophiles, to five author questions, or 5AQ, presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library, the podcast that attempts to delve into the minds of writers using only five questions. My name is Kevin King. I'm head of community engagement at the Kalamazoo Public Library. And I'm Sandra Farrick, head of youth services. So have you ever... Um, Spit in a vial and got a DNA <laughs> test before, Sandra? I swabbed my cheek and did it way back when. Uh-huh. And it told me, I don't know, like 75%, you know, Egypt region, which makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> but then I was also three different kinds of Jew. Wow. Ashkenazi, Ethiopian. I can't remember the other one. So I told my mother this and she's like, no way. Because no. if you ask my mother, we were descended from the pharaohs. So I'm like, well, we could just blame daddy for this. I don't know. Uh, that's really funny. I have not done it yet. And my kids keep asking me, they're like, we should do it. We should do it. And I just haven't done it. And after reading the book of our guest today, I'm wondering if I should. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll talk about that. Well, so, I do want to take another one just to see mm-hmm. how they compare. Yeah, I think that would be the interesting thing. So. Give you a little information about how to reach us. You can reach us on Instagram at five author questions spelled out. Uh, if you want to email us and, uh, you know, send us fan mail or tell us what your DNA test said about you, um, you know, you might want to do that. Probably not. But if you do, we could be related. You never know. <laughs> you can go podcasts at kpl.gov. And of course, like, share and subscribe to our podcast or we'll cry. At least I will. I'll cry a lot. You'll cry a lot? I usually do. Okay. Well, I'm so a... sensitive. <laughs> yes, you're a sensitive boy. I am. <laughs> okay. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Libby Copeland, who is an award-winning journalist who has written for the Washington Post, New York Magazine, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and many other publications. She specializes in the intersection of science and culture. Copeland was a reporter and editor at the Post for 11 years and has been a media, media fellow and guest lecturer and has made numerous appearances on television and radio. So for more information on Libby, you can go right to our website, LibbyCopeland.com. And the book she will be talking about today is her newest that came out in March of last year, The Lost Family. It's a book that explores the rapidly evolving phenomenon of home DNA testing, its implications for how we think about family and ourselves, and its ramifications for American culture broadly. The Wall Street Journal says it's a fascinating account of lives dramatically affected by genetic sleuthing. And I love that word sleuthing. Mm -hmm. I always love that word. (laughs) The New York Times writes, before you spit in that vial, read this book, which is one of my favorite blurbs I've ever read on a book. And then last, the, the Washington Post says the Lost Family reads like an Agatha Christie mystery and wrestles with some of the biggest questions in life. Who are we? What is family? And are we defined by nature, nurture, or both? And I just wanted to promote that if you want to pick up a copy, you can get a signed and personalized one by Libby herself. You can get that purchased through the Village Bookstore in Pleasantville, New York. And um, I'm going to put all this information in the show notes so you can know who to send it to, know where to get it. And she will, uh, I think, what do you like, uh, personalize it and then put a little dot of your, your blood because it's. The DNA, or you spit in it. You probably spit in the book, right? That's how you personalize it? Uh, absolutely. Okay, I always do that for every book. <laughs> That's what I thought. So welcome to 5AQ. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Sandra and Kevin. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. So our first question, five author questions. We have five. I always want to remind our guests this. There's five questions, but we reserve the right to follow up because it's our show. All right. First question. 
what was the catalyst for writing The Lost Family? Yeah, so I am, you know, I've always been interested in intimate stories, stories about um, what shapes us and, you know, what influences our identities and our motivations and our moral compass and all that fascinating stuff, sort of um, psychology. And I'm a science writer, um, especially in the last few years, I had started writing a lot more about um, the cognitive sciences and some some of the hard sciences as well. Um, And then it all kind of came to a head a few years ago. I was in conversation with one of my editors at the Washington Post, and we were talking about the unexpected consequences of DNA testing, how a lot of people, because this is marketed as entertainment, because um, this is considered recreational DNA testing, a lot of people go into it with um, certain expectations or no expectations at all, right? They're, they're like, well, let me just see how Italian I am. Let me get that pie chart. And then they find out that they're not related to their dad. Right. Or they find out that they have a previously unknown, much older half sister and they have to figure out how that half sister came to be. Right. And whether they want to have a relationship with her and that that whole backstory, what it means for their parents' marriage. Or they find out that um, something about their own genetic origins they weren't expecting. You know, they were donor conceived 50 years ago when that was stigmatized and nobody told them they were adopted Mm -hmm. and no one told them. Um, or if, even that their own genetic roots are different one, than than they thought um, for reasons having to do with um, historical forces like discrimination and assimilation. Um, and so this was happening at the time we knew to, you know, a subset of people who were testing. We weren't sure how, how common it was. Um, and at the time, there were not that many people who had tested. I think there were, this was about four years ago, so there were something like 8 million DNA test kits that have been sold by the four major companies in this space. Today, there are 37 million DNA test kits sold, um, and that subset of people has only swelled. So anyway, going back to this, you know, conversation with my editor, we thought, let's take a look at this. And we wrote, um, I wrote a story for the Washington Post about one such really compelling story uh, of a woman who got a DNA surprise. And sort of everything that followed after and how it altered her understanding of the past, of truth, of herself, of her family, um, you know, of her own identity. And I got this swell of response. I got like hundreds of um, emails from people saying, you know, that story was really compelling. I resonated with it. I want to tell you what happened to me. <laughs> you know, yeah. I took a test three years ago. I took a test three months ago. It has changed my life. I don't even know what to do. Um, let me tell you all about it. And it was in talking to these people, emailing and then getting on the phone with them that I realized that this was an absolute sort of seismic change to our culture, to the American family and to Americans as individuals. This is by the way, a primarily American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, these stories were so intimate and moving that I just thought, you know, number one, what a privilege that people are willing to share their stories with me. And number two, somebody needs to document this. And that's how I started writing The Lost Family. Yeah, I, I think everyone, not everyone, but I think most people nowadays have a story of someone they know that took a test and it changed their life. Um, I have a really close friend who was adopted and then all of a sudden he knew everybody in his family because of this test that he didn't know before. So I think it's very common and not surprising you heard that that many stories. So, yeah. 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 There's, there's millions of Americans who have now been impacted by the revelations that are contained in these vials that we spit into or we swab our cheeks through. Yeah. It's interesting because I didn't think about the whole, um, how it changes the family dynamic until I read your book. And I know why I didn't think of it because <laughs> I had a friend who experienced it, but it just made it kind of crystallized and made more sense at that point. 
And aren't, isn't law enforcement sort of using these tests now to sort of track familial? Yeah, that's how they caught the California killer. Yeah. Yeah. And probably at least Golden 200 cases since then, mostly cold wow. cases that had been sitting on shelves in law enforcement agencies all over the country that had never been able to be solved mm-hmm. through any other means and um, even through law enforcement DNA databases. But this kind of DNA, the DNA that we gather for the purposes of understanding our family history, mm-hmm. um, our genealogy, that kind of DNA is much more rich and informative. And law enforcement had figured out how to catch... Um, Usually, you know, the worse the worser kind of criminals through it, and that's led to a kind of privacy debate. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say the privacy debate on that one. Thank you. Okay. Question two. Tell us about someone you really admire in an area that really matters to you and why. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a journalist and um the stories that always get me are this sort of stories of ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Um you know, that's a lot of what I've spent my career trying to tell. It's a lot of what I tried to tell in The Lost Family. And there's a journalist that I really admire who I worked with at The Washington Post, and he's still there. And he's he's won a Pulitzer for his work. He's been nominated many times. Um, and his name is Eli Saslow. And he's written a number of books. Um, but the thing I really wanted to talk about today is this um, series he's been doing called Voices from the Pandemic. And they're all what are called as total twos. So he, he interviews people and then he kind of transcribes and maybe condenses um, their stories. And they're, they're absolutely amazing. You know, everything from a woman working in a store in an area where people don't want to wear masks when they come in and how threatened she feels like by that to um, I just read one recently that was about a COVID long hauler who previously was like a, a really talented soccer player and financial advisor who is now completely debilitated, is failing cognitive tests and can't get out of bed. And she's been affected by this for a year. Wow. Um, and the way I don't even know how he finds these stories. He must interview many, many, many people to just mm-hmm. find the perfect ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just has this way. I, I mean, I think the thing I admire about Eli Saslow and some of the best journalists that I read is that they can get people to tell them their stories, right, um, in a way that's really compelling. And he can he can elicit those stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he can kind of translate them into something so compelling that you feel like you know that person and you're deeply invested in their story. Yeah, that I'm, I've always admired really good interviewers, and that was one of the things when we started talking about this podcast. I started, I went back and was like watching video of interviewers and people that I really admire that do that. What you exactly said, pull out that little extra in the story to make it compelling and interesting. So yeah, people don't realize how much time that takes. You know, mm-hmm. in order to get a good half hour of material, if you were running it on a podcast, right? For yeah. instance, or a few minutes of interview if you were reading it, um, you might need to talk to that person for three or four hours. Exactly. So question number three, if you could pick a few songs that would be on the soundtrack for The Lost Family, what would you select? Yeah, I thought about this question a lot. Um, I like to run. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I have a soundtrack of music that I was listening to when I was writing the book and conceiving of the book Mm -hmm. and editing the book. And um, those songs are like intertwined in my brain with the writing of the book. So I went back and I was like looking to see if there were certain ones that really spoke to me. And there were three that I felt like Mm -hmm. really spoke to some of the themes um, in the book um, and also just 
are just wonderful songs. So the first is Jolene by Dolly Parton. <laughs> um, and I mean, I just, first of all, I love that song. I only started listening to it in the last few years. Um, what I love about it, and the reason I think it speaks to some of the themes in Lost Family is, number one, it's very mournful, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. which is a tone that I heard a lot of when I would interview people who were surprised about revelations in their own families and were experiencing a sense of loss or bittersweetness. Um, it's the central sort of story in that in that song is about somebody um, heartbroken because her 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 lover is in love with two people at once, right? And that theme is actually quite present in the backstories yeah. of a lot of the families in, in my book. Um, you know, a lot of times when someone's discovering something through a DNA test, it's because there's an infidelity. Um, and so that just, I just kind of thought, and then also that song was written in the early 70s. A lot of the people I was interviewing who were in their, you know, 40s and older, you know, they're, they're, these these things that they're discovering go back many, many decades. And so I love yeah. that. Um, another song that I wanted to shout out to was Truth Hurts by Lizzo. And not mm-hmm. only because it starts out with her saying, yeah. I just took a DNA test, turns out I'm 100% that bleep. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it does start out that way. But yes. what, I, what I liked about that song um, is because... It's about a person kind of squaring her soldiers. Her, it's about a person squaring her shoulders mm-hmm. against um, something painful and saying, "I'm going to be all right. I'm going to triumph." Mm-hmm. And that also was a theme I heard a lot of people experiencing painful things um, about them, about their families, about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last song I wanted to give a shout out to is actually by a singer songwriter who happens to be my brother. Okay. Um, his name is Jordan Copeland and he has a song called East Tremont. And um, this song is about a person remembering something from their childhood. Um, and what I love about that song is how vivid the memories are for all of us and how we can go and kind of live in our childhood memories, right? They're so vivid to us. They're so real. We can actually step back and live in them and they influence who we are now. Like they continue to shape us. Um, A lot of the people that I interviewed for my book, The Lost Family, talked about how childhood memories and the reinterpretations of those childhood memories in light of new information, Mm -hmm. you know, really was influential to them now and kind of was, was part of how they processed the news that came to them by way of genetic revelation. The other thing I thought about in Jolene being, when you said that, it was like, oh yeah, that's a perfect song for this book. Because not just the infidelity, but just... Like, I love one family and maybe I grew up with, and now I've got to learn to love another family. And that's kind of like, you know, part of that song as well. So it kind of hits in two points there. So yeah. brilliant choices. Yeah, brilliant. thank you. Thank you. Okay, question four. Do you have any hidden secret skills or abilities? Um, aside from my power to be invisible, <laughs> <laughs> my invisibility cloak, Um you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, so I don't do this as much anymore because I've kind of had to put it on hold for a variety of reasons. But um, I did train in karate for a number of years and earned my black belt a few years ago. So I don't know if that counts as like a secret ability um, or a superpower, but um, it's probably the best that I have is my um, my ability to kick high and punch. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, know, you. We had another author whose secret ability was knowing how to use a um, a grenade launcher. That is amazing. I know. So, <laughs> that had to be mine. I know. It's like, <laughs> we get you two together and we'll have like a, an A team of authors. 
Exactly. <laughs> they'll, they'll start our army. Yeah, it's like an author army. All right. <laughs> Question number five. Have you taken a home DNA test and did you find any surprising results? Spill the beans, yeah. spill the beans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've taken three. Okay. And um, Sandra was saying earlier, you know, she wants to take more than one because she wants to compare the results, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so people might who might not be familiar so much with this industry might wonder, like, why would you take more than one? And it's precisely for the reason Sandra said. So it's not that your DNA changes, obviously, when you test <laughs> at a different company. But, you know, you're going to match to different DNA relatives depending on who's tested with the company that you're interested in. Um, in testing with. So, you know, you might find that long lost first cousin at one company's database and not at another. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason why you test widely sometimes. Some people do. Um, The other thing is that while the um, relative matching is very reliable, the the ethnicity estimates are Mm -hmm. estimates. (laughs) And those really vary depending on the skill of the company interpreting it and the state of the science, um, the algorithms they're using, the reference populations they're using. There's all these factors that make it so that those estimates of where your people came from, say, 502,000 years ago, really vary. So I tested in three companies because I wanted to know, how do my results compare? How do my relatives compare? Um, And what I found absolutely amazing was, number one, with the ethnicity estimates, sometimes they're like, really, really off at the margins, right? So supposedly, at one point, I had 1% Korean. That turned out to be what a senior scientist told me was background noise, and it completely disappeared. On the other hand, one of the companies could tell me with astonishing specificity the precise county in Sweden that my great-grandmother came from, right? So it's all like kind of grain of salt, and you have to back up those ethnicity estimates with paper records. You you, you have to do the research because otherwise – um, you know, it's it's hard to say. A lot of populations look like other populations. War and migration and other factors yeah. can kind of make it difficult to identify different populations and there's intermixing. So those are all that that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, as far as relatives, we found some amazing finds. Um, we found relatively close cousins for both of my parents. Um, both traced back to um, like branches of the family that were left behind in Europe that we didn't know existed anymore. So on my dad's side, we didn't know that this branch existed because there was like a break in the line, basically, right? Um, And so even though Sweden has really great records, we wouldn't have looked for them or necessarily found them because the records didn't document this particular relationship. Um, And we were able to actually travel to Sweden and meet my dad's second cousin um, and his daughter, a genealogist. And (laughs) they were able to point us toward where my dad's grandmother had lived before she emigrated from Sweden at the age of 16 in the 1890s. Wow. So we got to see the landscape of her life. And we would never have known, right? And this is somebody who was very influential in my dad's life and consequently in my life. And, you know, a lot of decisions that she made for practical reasons or on whims have kind of shaped, like, where I live, right? (laughs) And all this kind of fascinating stuff that makes you crazy when you start thinking about Mm -hmm. how the past leads you to where you are today. On my mom's side, we were able to find a close cousin from a family branch that was left behind when my mom's grandfather came over from Eastern Europe. Now, they are Ashkenazi Jews. They were leaving pogroms and discrimination. And this was well before World War II. But, you know, he left behind lots of siblings and didn't talk about all the people he left behind. And we just assumed that they probably died, right? They probably Mm -hmm. didn't survive um, everything that the 20th century through at Jews living in Eastern Europe, including, of course, the Holocaust. But it turns out that they did. Mm 
At least one branch did. Um, and they not only survived, they lived in Ukraine wow. uh, somehow. And then this particular individual made his way to Israel and then made his way to Brooklyn. And we talked to him on the <laughs> phone. And it was like, holy cow. Yeah. Right. So again, these are things that like the paper record is great and the paper record can be really helpful for interpreting the DNA or as a starting point and the DNA helps you understand the paper record. But there are some times when the paper record just doesn't work anymore. Like you hit a brick wall and there's no documentation, right? And that's when DNA um, can be really, really helpful because there are, are a lot of populations where or, or, or community or family circumstances that mean that there's not going to be archival records of something. There's not going to be a genealogical record, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when DNA can kind of surface that relative that makes you understand your family with so much more context and like also just connect across the generations. It's really quite a profound discovery on both sides for us. Yeah. Is there, a, do you know of a place you can recommend our listeners that if they need to find paper records, they can go? This is a leading question, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I I can. Um, so there are a couple of, you know, online resources, and it mm -hmm. kind of varies depending on what community you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in general, there's a really good resource that is free, and that's um, FamilySearch.org. And that's run by the LDS Church out in Utah, the Mormon Church. Um, and they for um for religious reasons they are deeply invested in genealogy and they collect a lot of genealogical records and put them online and again those are free that's a big deal there are also um subscription based services so you're paying for access um that sometimes have things that family search doesn't have um ancestry.com runs a very big one um, my heritage runs one as well. And then again, if you're looking for specific records, there are particular places where you can find guidance, like Jewish Gen can help you if you're looking in particular for Jewish records. So those are all kind of areas that, that can be starting points for folks. And for a lot of people, they can start at their local library. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> what I was just about to say. <laughs> and, and the nice thing about going to your library is that the the genealogical expert at your library is going to be able to guide you. Mm -hmm. And so you're not kind of reinventing the wheel. They kind of already know the landscape and that's a really helpful thing. Yeah. And, f and for our Kalamazoo listeners, remember the Kalamazoo public library has an amazing local history genealogical collection. And a lot of those databases that were mentioned are free. If you are a member of the Kalamazoo public library, just a, pl a plug, <laughs> personal a plug, a shameless plug, shameless personal plug. And speaking of plugs, before we get to the next thing, yes. I just want to make sure people know that Libby is going to do a, a full presentation for the Kalamazoo Public Library on May 5th at 6 o'clock. So um, if you're listening to this before May 5th, please join us after May 5th. I'm sure we might have some video copies somewhere. That we can... Yeah, and join it and ask questions because if yeah. you're there live, I can take questions and I can't do that if you're not there. Exactly. <laughs> Hang out with me. Yeah, that's right. There's no technology for that yet. She's right. really, she's really fun. She's you super want, fun. Yeah. Right. So they should all want to hang yeah. out with her. Exactly. All right. So what are you working on now, or what's coming up next for you? That is a good question. I'm still continuing to get a lot of emails from people um, who've been through, you know, experiences having to do with the fascinating kind of intersection of this technology and their mm -hmm. personal lives, right? Um, so I'm still working in that space. I'm still writing a lot. Um, I just had an op-ed in the New York Times recently looking at um, our kind of country's complicated history with our understanding of race and how DNA testing can shed light on on that. Um, and so I write op-eds. I write um, 
columns for Psychology Today, and I'm um, interested in writing more on this space, but I'm not sure yet, like, you know, exactly what my next book is going to be, if there is going to be a next book, <laughs> fingers crossed that, you know, maybe I can <laughs> work my way toward that. Yeah. We always hope for some kind of like announcement that no nobody else got. Like, well, right. I can announce now my new book is about. <laughs> I hear you. Totally. Breaking news. Breaking news. So our little podcast can say we broke exclusive. the story. <laughs> exactly. I just want to play that exclusive soundtrack. That, you know that. <laughs> you know, that's a really great. Thing. So you need to have breaking news on May 5th. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Do that. You I'll work my way toward that. Yeah, Let me yeah. see if I can get a contract. Come, come up with some breaking <laughs> news, please. All right. Well, Libby, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been super fun to talk to you. Um, I think I have a little more information uh, about spitting in a cup. Mm-hmm. And uh, see what I'll do there. And uh, Let me know if you decide to do it. You know, I, I, think... I can give you some, some context and some tips. Yeah, Ooh. that would be good. I, I, yeah. I, I, I think I also worry about the whole privacy thing. You know, the government. Has Are you? That's a whole other topic. It's so I fascinating. I know. Yeah. I know. But then I always say when my kids say things like that, I'm like, the government doesn't really care about you. <laughs> <laughs> also, <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm sorry. We're not criminals. I don't care. That's what you think. I know. <laughs> Thank you, Libby. We appreciate it. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Have right. a good one. You too. You Thanks for listening to another episode of Five Author Questions presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library. Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss an episode. And finally, we leave you with a quote from Gandhi. The power to question is the basis of all human progress.